If you have your Bibles, and I hope that you do, if you'd open them to Esther chapter 9. If you're new to the Bible, Esther is in the Old Testament, which is in the front of the book. If you hit Job or Psalms, you've gone too far. Esther chapter 9 and 10. And the title of this sermon is Fasting to Feasting. Fasting to feasting. Well, I don't know about you, but as we've come to the last several chapters, I felt like the author of Esther could have just written the end numerous times. I mean, especially after Haman got impaled on the exact wooden pole that he made to kill Mordecai. That would have been a great place to just roll the credits. But the story continues, doesn't it? Last week, we learned that while Haman, the wicked witch, was dead, God's people were still in danger. Esther and Mordecai secured a rival edict so that the Jews could protect themselves. And they had nine whole months to prepare for a battle. Well... The time has now come, hasn't it? A full year has passed since Haman rolled the dice, or cast the poor, to decide the date of the genocide. We're now at the month of Adar. All of the enemies of God's people have also been arming themselves. They've had this date circled on their calendars. They're bloodthirsty to kill the Jews. And that's where today's text begins. God's people still, unfortunately, aren't out of the woods completely. So with that in mind, let's dive into the text. Esther chapter 9, starting in verse 1. This is the word of the Lord. Now in the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar, on the thirteenth day of the same, when the king's command and edict were about to be carried out, On the very day when the enemies of the Jews hoped to gain the mastery over them, the reverse occurred. The Jews gained mastery over those who hated them. The Jews gathered in their cities throughout all the provinces of King Ahasuerus to lay hands on those who sought their harm. And no one could stand against them, for the fear fear of them had fallen on all peoples. All the officials of the provinces and the satraps and the governors and the royal agents also helped the Jews, for the fear of Mordecai had fallen on them. For Mordecai was great in the king's house, and his fame spread throughout all the provinces. For the man Mordecai grew more and more powerful. The Jews struck all their enemies with the sword, killing and destroying them, and did as they pleased to those who hated them. In Susa, the citadel itself, the Jews killed and destroyed 500 men, and also killed Parshendatha, and Delphin, and Azpath, and Porthena, and Adalia, and Aridatha, and Parmashta, and Arasai, and Aridai, and Baizatha, the ten sons of Haman, the son of Hamadatha, the enemy of the Jews. But they laid no hand on the plunder. That very day, the number of those killed in Susa, the citadel, was reported to the king. And the king said to Queen Esther, 
In Susa the citadel, the Jews have killed and destroyed 500 men and also the 10 sons of Haman. What then have they done in the rest of the king's provinces? Now, what is your wish? It shall be granted you. And what further is your request? It shall be fulfilled. Verse 13. And Esther said, If it please the king, let the Jews who are in Susa be allowed tomorrow also to do according to this day's edict. And let the ten sons of Haman be hanged on the gallows. So the king commanded this to be done. A decree was issued in Susa, and the ten sons of Haman were hanged. The Jews who were in Susa gathered also on the fourteenth day of the month of Adar, and they killed three hundred men in Susa. But they laid no hands on the plunder. Now the rest of the Jews who were in the king's provinces also gathered to defend their lives, and got relief from their enemies, and killed seventy-five thousand of those who hated them. But they laid no hands on the plunder. This was on the thirteenth day of the month of Adar, and on the fourteenth day they rested and made that a day of feasting and gladness. But the Jews who were in Susa gathered on the thirteenth day, and on the fourteenth, and rested on the fifteenth day, making that a day of feasting and gladness. Therefore the Jews of the villages who live in the rural towns hold the fourteenth day of the month of Adar as a day for gladness and feasting, as a holiday and as a day on which they send gifts of food to one another. And Mordecai recorded these things and sent letters to all the Jews who were in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus, both near and far, obliging them to keep the fourteenth day on the month of Adar, and also the fifteenth day of the same, year by year, as the days on which the Jews got relief from their enemies, and as the month that had been turned for them from sorrow into gladness, and from mourning into a holiday, that they should make them days of feasting and gladness, days for sending gifts of food to one another and gifts to the poor. So the Jews accepted what they had started to do and what Mordecai had written to them. For Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, the enemy of all the Jews, had plotted against the Jews to destroy them and had cast poor, that is, cast lots, to crush and to destroy them. But when it came before the king, he gave orders in writing that his evil plan that he had devised against the Jews should return on his own head, and that he and his sons should be hanged on the gallows. Therefore they call these days Purim, after the term Pur. Therefore, because of all that was written in this letter, and of what they had faced in this matter, and of what had happened to them, the Jews firmly obligated themselves and their offspring and all who joined them that without fail they would keep these two days according to what was written and at the time appointed every year, that these days should be remembered and kept throughout every generation, in every clan, province, and city, and that the days of Purim should never fall into disuse among the Jews, nor should the commemoration commemoration of these days cease among their descendants. Then Queen Esther, the daughter of Abihel, and Mordecai the Jew gave full written authority confirming this second letter about Purim. Letters were sent to all the Jews to the 127 provinces of the kingdom of Ahasuerus in words of peace and truth, that these days of Purim should be observed at, at their appointed seasons as Mordecai the Jew and Queen Esther obligated them. 
and as they had obligated themselves and their offspring with regard to their fast and their lamenting. The command of Esther confirmed these practices of Purim, and it was recorded in writing. King Ahasuerus imposed a tax on the land and on the coastlands of the sea, and all the acts of his power and might and the full account of the high honor of Mordecai, to which the king advanced him, are they not written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Media and Persia? For Mordecai the Jew was second in rank to King Ahasuerus, and he was great among the Jews, and popular with the multitude of his brothers, for he sought the welfare of his people and spoke peace to all his people. This end section breaks down into three fairly clean subsections. Section 1 includes verses 1 through 16 and describes what we'll call the Great Reversal. Section 2 includes verses 17 through 32 and describes the process of remembrance. Section 3 includes chapter 10 verses 1 through 3 and describes continued life in the evil empire. So how does the story of Esther end and what are we to make of it? Let's first look at the great reversal. And this is where we're going to spend the overwhelming majority of our time this morning. Verse 1. Uh, this could be the, the headline of the story in all of the newspapers, so to speak. It says, Now in the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar, on the thirteenth day of the same, when the king's command and edict were about to be carried out, on the very day when the enemies of the Jews hoped to gain mastery over them, a reverse occurred. The Jews gained mastery over those who hated them. Kevin DeYoung joked that in the Uno deck, uh, other than the number cards, the reverse card is the most boring card ever. It doesn't skip anyone. It doesn't make anyone draw extra cards. It just reverses. Boring. But when it comes to deep depression, when it comes to oppression, when it comes to a literal death sentence, there's nothing better than a reversal. And that's what happens in this section of text. God's enemies who had hoped to gain mastery over his people are thwarted. They're demolished themselves. The reverse occurred. That's great news. But how was that carried out? How did this reversal happen? Look at verses 2 through 5. The Jews gathered in their cities throughout all the provinces of King Ahasuerus to lay hands on those who sought their harm. No one could stand against them, for the fear of them had fallen on all peoples. Verse 3, all the officials of the province and the satraps and the governors and the royal agents also helped the Jews. Verse 4, for Mordecai was great in the king's house. His fame spread throughout all the provinces. For the man, Mordecai, grew more and more powerful. The Jews struck all their enemies with the sword, killing and destroying them, and did as they pleased to those who hated them. I want us to notice a couple of truths here. Number one... Look at this verb in verse 2. The Jews gathered. The Jews gathered. 
This isn't some sort of every man for himself individualistic thing, is it? No. They're unified. They're gathered together and fighting as one. If one Jew suffered, all would suffer. If one triumphed, all would triumph. There wasn't any friendly fire going on here. They weren't fighting each other. Instead, they were fighting for each other. And that's God's desire for us as the people of God today, the church. I'm not going to spend a long time here, but you, you see the importance of God's people being unified and gathered. If we're all just out there doing our own thing, just me and Jesus, we're not experiencing all that God has for us. Further, we'll be powerless. A, a Christian that's unconnected from a church is like a hand severed from a body. It's lifeless, not able to be used in the way that God desires. God's people are gathered and unified. The text tells us that no one could stand against them. Second, I don't know if you noticed this or not, but they have the help of the government at this point. Look at verse 3. How different is this from the beginning of the story? God has quietly but powerfully turned the tables through a series of coincidences that we know weren't coincidences at all. He's in complete control. He's using pagan government officials to protect his people. Isn't that amazing? It's not just Christians that God uses to accomplish his purposes. He's sovereign over all things and all people. Now, before we get too squeamish here about what's happening in the text, I want us to remember that there are no innocent people being killed in this chapter. I'll say it again. There are no innocent people being killed in this chapter. It's not like Haman was killed and then all of these innocent people are just passively sitting around and the Jews came in and murdered them. That's not what happened at all. Each of these people were still actively seeking to kill the people of God. This is a battle between good and evil. What happens in chapter 9 is a defensive killing. I want us to remember the exact words of the edict that we looked at last week. Chapter 8, verse 11. It says, The king allowed the Jews who were in every city to gather and defend their lives, to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate any armed force of people or province that might attack them, children and women included, and to plunder their goods. What's happening here is divine justice being administered through the hands of God's representatives on earth. In many ways, what this chapter is meant to point to is the battle of Armageddon in Revelation 19 and 20. I want us to just take a moment and consider the parallels. In Esther, the war is effectively over, yet there are still battles to be fought. Same thing in Scripture. At the cross of Christ, and upon Jesus' resurrection from the dead, 
the war is effectively over. Sin, Satan, and death were defeated at the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. Yet, there are still battles to be fought, Armageddon being one of them. What we see here in Esther is a battle between good and evil. There are no innocent victims. Each person who has lined up to annihilate God's people has lined up to annihilate God himself. They've sided with the seed of the serpent and are receiving God's divine justice. Understand this. If we're reading Esther rightly, we're meant to be cheering and celebrating at this point, not making excuses or being embarrassed by the truth of the text. This is meant to be celebrated and welcomed as great news. God's people, who were were under a death sentence, have been rescued by a great reversal. Let's keep reading, verses 6 through 10. It says, In Susa, the citadel itself, the Jews killed and destroyed 500 men, and also killed Parshandatha, and Delphin, and Asphatha, and Poratha, and Adelia, and Aridatha, and Parmashta, and Arisai, and Aridai, and Vizatha, the ten sons of Haman, the son of Hamadatha, the enemy of the Jews. But they laid no hands on the plunder. Whew, those names. Notice that that the author only mentions those names once. Um, He didn't want to read them either. From that point forward, they're just called the sons of Ammon. In in all seriousness, though, I I want us to see a couple of truths here. Uh, Again, uh, I'll reference the actual edict from chapter 8, verse 11. Ahasuerus gave the Jews permission to kill women and children and plunder the goods. They do neither of these things. They kill men, and they laid no hand on the plunder. That truth is repeated three different times in this section, and it's not because the author is sleepy and forgot that he wrote it already. No, he's highlighting it to make a specific point that he doesn't want us to miss this morning. They laid no hand on the plunder says it three times. Why wouldn't they? I mean, I'm sure there was a lot of loot to be had. They could have gathered swords and rings, pots and pans, all kinds of stuff that would have looked great in their houses. But they didn't. Why? Well, first and foremost, I believe that they were succeeding where King Saul had failed. They were obeying God where King Saul had disobeyed. Anyone remember chapter 3 of Esther? Where we were introduced to Haman for the first time? Remember how he was introduced? Haman the Agagite. Haman the Agagite. And we were told that Mordecai was a descendant of King Saul. Remember why that was a big deal? 1 Samuel 15 right? God told King Saul to put King Agag and the Amalekites to death. And he told them what? Not to take the plunder. What did King Saul do? He kept Agag alive and he took the best of the plunder. 
disobedience there led King Saul to be removed from kingship. It was actually an Amalekite who eventually killed him. Esther and God's people are doing the exact opposite of King Saul here in chapter 9 and 10. They're destroying God's enemies and laying no hand on the plunder. And this is part of a a much bigger narrative throughout the Old Testament as a whole. In Genesis chapter 14, you have Abram and the king of Sodom. And it says this, Genesis 14, 21 through 23. And the king of Sodom said to Abram, Give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have lifted my hand to the Lord, God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, that I would not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abram rich. He's saying, it's God who provides for me. I want you to know that. I I want everyone to know that. I don't want anyone saying that it was the king of Sodom. When God's people enter the promised land, it's the same thing, isn't it? God commands them to destroy Jericho and not to take the things devoted to destruction. Achan disobeys. He takes a cloak, some silver, and a bar of gold. He lays his hand on the plunder. God judges them, and then they get spanked by this tiny city of Ai in the battle. There's a principle here. God isn't giving his people victory so that they can get rich. He's doing it so that he can get glory. Christopher Ashe writes this. He says, in the Old Testament, the underlying principle of holy war was that the people of God executed the judgment of God on the enemies of God. And because they were God's agents, it was very important that they themselves did not gain by their actions, by taking plunder. Here's what I want us to see. The reversal and the rescue isn't about getting stuff. It's about evil being vanquished and God winning victory over his enemies. While I'm not going to read the names again, I do want to point out these ten sons of Haman. Do you see the the legacy that Haman left? Do you see what he discipled his ten sons into? Think about this. Their dad hated God's people. He wanted to destroy them. He was passionate about it. And he passed this on to his sons. Even after watching their dad get impaled on a 75-foot wooden beam... They had month after month after month to change course and to side with God's people. But they didn't. They shared their father's values. They followed in their father's footsteps to their deaths. I want to stop here and quote Landon Dowden, who I think asks some pretty convicting questions. He says this. He says, What are we leading those who come behind us to be passionate and sacrificial about? Haman's sons followed their father's footsteps right up to the point of joining him in eternal death. So where will our steps lead those we disciple? 
How many in our congregations are leading their children to be passionate about their favorite sports teams or leisure activities? How many in our congregations are leading those they are discipling to be passionate about the things of the world? Where are the moms and the dads who are passing down a legacy of making every effort to grow in godliness or make every effort to go with the gospel? Ouch and amen. Every single one of us, every single one of us is discipling our kids into something. The question is, what will it be? These ten names that are listed off here in the text, these ten names have souls. And these souls were discipled into eternal death. That should break our hearts. I wonder, what names that also have souls has God put in your path? Whose legacy do you have the opportunity to eternally affect? Your children, your neighbors, your co-workers. They, like these ten, have names. And they have souls. How will you share the good news with them? How will you disciple them? Let's keep going. Verses 11 through 15. That very day, the number of those killed in Susa, the citadel, was reported to the king. And the king said to Queen Esther, In Susa, the citadel, the Jews have killed and destroyed 500 men, and also the ten sons of Haman. What then have they done in the rest of the king's provinces? Now what is your wish? It shall be granted you. And what further is your request? It shall be fulfilled. And Esther said, If it please the king, let the Jews who are in Susa be allowed tomorrow also to do according to this day's edict, and let the ten sons of Haman be hanged on the gallows. So the king commanded this to be done. A decree was issued in Susa, and the ten sons of Haman were hanged. The Jews who were in Susa gathered also on the fourteenth day of the month of Adar, and they killed three hundred men in Susa. But they laid no hand on the plunder. This section of text is wild, isn't it? The king gets the, the report of how many were killed in Susa and seems to say, Wow! Jolly good work! How did you guys fare in the rest of my kingdom? How'd you do? Then, absolutely unprovoked this time, he uses the same language as before. Ask Esther for a wish and a request. Her response? Can we have another day tomorrow like we did today, she says? And can we publicly impale Haman's sons like we did their father? It's at this point that a lot of people critique Esther, making her out to be some bloodthirsty warmonger. But I think that misses the point. Notice her exact language. Let the Jews who are in Susa be allowed tomorrow also to do according to this day's edict. She's not asking to go on a rampage. She's asking for the Jews to be able to defend themselves for one more day. It's possible that she had a count of how many people were geared up and ready to kill the Jews. And after day one... She's done the math. 
500 men killed. But she knows there's more. She knows that if they don't completely crush God's enemies, that they'll be in trouble. If only King Saul had done this back in 1 Samuel 15. So, the king grants her request. As Esther had surmised, 300 more men come out of the woodwork the next day. God's people defend themselves, and evil is destroyed. Isn't this wild? After, after watching, think about this, after watching 500 of your friends rebel against God and against his people, after watching them all die, 300 more men go for it again. This is the foolishness of sin. How often have we seen sin's consequences and then continued to dabble the next day, expecting different results? I've said it several times. I'll say it at least once more. Sin always overpromises and underdelivers. It will always promise life and freedom and always deliver death and bondage. That's exactly what happens here. Further, Esther has the ten sons of Haman publicly shamed on wooden beams. This was public humiliation that was a symbol of being cursed for all to see. So, what are we meant to learn in this great reversal? First, God is a God of justice. God is a God of justice. There are consequences for sin and rebelling against God. The wages of sin is death. God will crush all of his enemies under his feet. And he's just in doing so. To rebel against his holiness is cosmic treason. And the just punishment is eternal judgment and separation from God. Now I want, us, now I want to remind us of what I said at the beginning. None of the people who died in this chapter are innocent. They were actively rebelling against God and against his seed. And here's the truth. That describes every single one of us. Romans 3.23 All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Every single one of us deserves for God's holy war to be directed at us like it was directed at Haman and his ten sons and the thousands who died in Esther 9. But instead, hear this, instead, God declared holy war on his son, Jesus Christ, who was cursed on the wooden beam in our place. The decree of death against us was overcome by the decree of death fulfilled by God's Son. Jesus went to the cross in our place, took on our sin and our shame. God's judgment and wrath was poured out on him so that we would be delivered and redeemed. He died so our great reverse would be secured forever. 
Colossians chapter 1, verses 13 and 14 says it this way. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Now, due to a lack of time, I'm going to have to fly at 30,000 feet through the rest of the text. After God sovereignly delivered his people through judging his enemies, do you see what the people of God do? Look at verses 16 through 19. They rest and they rejoice. They rest and they rejoice. There's there's gladness and feasting. Friends, this is a proper response to the gospel. When we come to repent and believe in Christ, we're promised victory because of Jesus. The response to this is to rest in that truth. The response to this is gladness and feasting. Further, look at what Esther and Mordecai do in verses 20 through 32. It goes into detail to tell us that they institute this annual feast commemorating this event in Israel's history. They want to make sure that God's people remember what God did. And I love this. Look at verse 26. Therefore, they called these days Purim, after the term poor. Remember what the poor are? They're the lots or the dice from chapter 3. that that Haman used to decide what day the genocide would be. And God's people named the Feast of Esther after that. Why would they do such a thing? Seems strange. Well, because every single year, by the name alone, Purim, they're reminded of God's sovereignty over their salvation. Remember Proverbs 16.33? It says this, The lot, or or the poor, is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. God doesn't just control the big picture things in this world. He controls everything, down to, to the little tiny dice and which way they fall. Every single reversal in this book is from the hidden hand of God. That's the point. Esther and Mordecai wanted to make sure that God's people never forgot it. So, they called for a regular rhythm of gladness and feasting and remembrance. A regular meal to remember God's sovereign deliverance of a people? What does that remind you of? The Lord's Supper. Communion the Eucharist, a meal where we regularly celebrate and remember God's sovereign salvation of his people, a meal where we regularly remember the redemption and rest that Christ brought us through his sacrifice in our place. I absolutely love what Dr. David Strain has to say here. He says, here's what you do with the truths of the book of Esther. You remember grace and you rejoice. The Jews did it at Purim. It's what we do every Lord's Day. At least it ought to be. On the first day of the week, when death was undone and the stone was rolled away, 
and life and immortality were brought to light in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We gather to remember the Sabbath rest of God and to rejoice. Sunday is our festival day when we remember that the victory has been won, that the seed of the woman has crushed the head of the serpent and now reigns from the throne of glory. He goes on to say, the Christian Sabbath is our day for feasting and gladness and giving and celebration. Part of our tasks as we seek to remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy is to do what the Jews do here at Purim, to remember, to rehearse again the old, old story of Jesus and his cross, that we might reignite the flames of rejoicing in our hearts. A Sunday that is morbid and dark is not a godly Sabbath. Today is the day when life and immortality were brought to light, the day in which light was created, when the light of the world broke through the darkness of death for us and our salvation. Amen. Friends, this is why we sing. This is why we celebrate. This is why we take the Lord's Supper every week together. We're remembering, and we're gladly feasting on the truth of the gospel. And it's here that I want to point out chapter 10, verses 1 through 3. Chapter 10, verses 1 through 3. In some sense, it's a reality check, isn't it? Look at verse 1. After all of that, chapter, chapter 10, verse 1, King Ahasuerus imposed a tax on the land and on the coastlands of the sea. That prideful dunce of a king is still in charge. And they're still having to live under the evil empire, though their lives were saved. More than that, consider all that the Jewish people have endured since that day throughout history. They've been through it as a people. And yet, they still celebrated Purim every year in the midst of that. Why? Because it wasn't just a feast that caused them to look back. It was a feast that reminded them of a fuller redemption to come. It reminded them of the promise of Genesis 3.15, that God's seed has won the war, even in the midst of battle. This is what we should be doing each and every time we take the bread and take the cup together. We, like God's people in Esther, we gather in unity. We look back in remembrance and forward in hope. We remember and rehearse the gospel together. We feast in gladness because of the rest we've been given in Christ, even as we live in the evil empire. In conclusion, while God's name is never mentioned in the book of Esther, his invisible hand of providence is on every page. This book is meant to encourage us and call us to faith in the God who sees us, knows us, and is still saving his people through his seed, Jesus Christ. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1, says this, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction 
of things not seen. Brothers and sisters, have faith in God. Know with every fiber of your being that he's here. He's sovereign. He wins in the end. His ancient promises never fail. And he will bring his people rest. Let's celebrate that this morning with gladness and feasting. Let's pray.